What happens when a good Christian girl from Joplin, Missouri grows up to get a PhD in something called Jungian and Archetypal Studies? Well, for starters, don't ask her father. Today, we speak for a fourth time with Dr. Lawson, a pediatrician turned Jungian philosopher who will discuss how her current worldview stands at odds with her fundamentalist Christian roots. Besides putting her newfound dream interpretation skills to the test, we will also examine philosophies that don't mix so well, such as rigid versus fluid methods of thinking, opposing political ideologies, as well as the medical model versus alternative treatments. In addition, our discussion will focus on how to navigate the deeply confusing position of knowing which philosophical frameworks to choose for ourselves and why. Lastly, Dr. Lawson now has her own podcast called The Stuff of Dreams. I recommend a listen. It is available on iTunes and most podcast platforms. My name is Benjamin Russick, licensed marriage and family therapist, and this is my podcast, Look, Just Tell Me What to Do. Miss Amy Lawson. Back again. Back again. We've done three episodes prior. One was the medical model contrasted with Jungian archetypal theory. Yes? Yes, that sounds familiar. And then one on why dreams matter. And then the third one was on uh, Carl Jung and Tiger King. <laughs> it was timely. It was the pandemic. It, it made a lot of sense. It, yeah, yeah, yeah it, it did make, <laughs> it made so much sense. So tell us a little bit about yourself, again, for those of you who have no idea who you are and how important you are. So important. Let's see. Wow, I don't actually know what to say. Okay. Um, well, I guess most people would say the main part of my identity is that I am a practicing pediatrician. Mm -hmm. But then I had a midlife crisis, met you. The universe knew. I know how you love it when I talk about the universe. The universe knew that I needed you. Yeah. And then my black and white worldview of medicine was shattered by the Jungian stuff that started to creep into my life. And what is Jungian stuff? So you were a pediatrician, an MD who treats little, little bitty babies in a NICU somewhere. And here comes this guy who's steeped in Jungian philosophies and says stuff like what? Stuff like, we should talk about your dreams. And here, read this guy named Edward Edinger that I'd never heard of before. And maybe things aren't quite as black and white as they've ever seemed. And it all started to make a lot of sense to me. So then I ended up going to school where you went to school. And now I have a master's in Jungian and archetypal studies, which is very pretentious, but that basically means depth psychology. And mm -hmm. I'm supposedly working on a PhD. That's been a rocky process, but, but yeah. So I'm a doctor who got weird and went toward depth psychology too. And um, for those of those listening at home, how do we define depth psychology? The unconscious is real. Just like that. Mm -hmm. I like it. And what's the unconscious? <laughs> um, I think the unconscious is the part of ourselves that's below the conscious level that we can't directly access. We can't directly communicate with it, mm -hmm. but it communicates with us in images and dreams and imaginings. You know, we, we have to we have to listen for it instead. Mm -hmm. The unconscious is the part of us that's connected to some deeper wisdom as yeah. well yeah. i compare it really to the ocean you know that on the yeah. top is the ego where the love light you can see ego is the conscious everything is conscious you can see right. your conscious self as you descend into the depths it gets darker and darker and darker and there's no firm line between what's conscious and unconscious but think about it as you get darker and darker and down and down and down and down there and there's all these creatures that are lurking in the depths and stuff that you've never connected with and that's where you get all your healing is by connecting with this immensely powerful 
zone. Mm-hmm. So on previous episodes, the emphasis has been, well, Amy is a doctor and she used to be a black and white thinker, very much into science. And then this Jungian stuff comes along and boom. But today we're going to look a little bit on the origins of all that because you went back home and, and saw some things and met some people and had some, imagine, awkward conversations and saw some things that you didn't like. My big shtick in therapy is I want to look at how people were formed, how they're shaped. Mm. Um, yeah. Not how they're traumatized, but how they're shaped. If you want to know about yourself or anybody else, you find out how they were sh- how they were wrought by the world. So let's start though with you looked me up suddenly because something happened. You had a dream. Yeah, I know. We haven't talked for several months, and I had a dream last week that you were in uh, that I think was kind of an important big dream, and so so I texted you, and you were like, "What do you think it means?" And I said, "We should get into it." What was the dream? Here's my dream. I'm in a therapy session in Ben's office, and he's offering me objects and things he think will help. I remember he offers me five different things, but I can only remember what two of them were. The second one is a brown and gray and gold cat who stretches out on his side and lets me pet him. The last thing Ben offers me, the fifth, is a large live snake, maybe four inches thick and five or six feet long. The snake is calm, so it feels safe to reach out and take her in my hands. Cool. That's the dream. And do you have any take on that dream? I think that it has a flavor that talks about the past and also a flavor that talks about the present. I think that being in your office symbolizes, you know, doing inner work. In our Jungian way of looking at dreams, we think that people in dreams represent parts of the dreamer more often than actual people in the outside world. Mm -hmm. But it makes a lot of sense to me that my unconscious would choose you to, you know, symbolize inner work and, and this depth psychology stuff. And so I think the two objects that are offered and the order of them are really important. You know, first is like, a cuddly, purry cat, right? That's such an easy image. That's a happy image, joyful, like very tactile, but nothing really challenging about it. The last object is a little more challenging, right? A snake. I mean, I'm not afraid of snakes. I don't have any negative connotations toward them, but this Mm -hmm. is like a big, hefty snake, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's a little scarier to, to receive that. And so I think that that progression easier to harder makes a lot of sense because I think that the reason you worked so well as my therapist for such a long time was because we share that very like mental level, you know, like working on things up in our heads. Mm -hmm. While that was, of course, like difficult, like any inner work is for my makeup, that was the cat that wasn't the snake so Mm -hmm. much Mm -hmm. Um, because living in my head is where I'm used to and science Mm -hmm. and understanding and manipulating things with my mind. My work the last couple of years has been with a somatic therapist and much more getting into my body, getting into emotions and getting more toward my feminine side, which is not my strong point in any means. Mm -hmm. And so I think the progression from cat to snake is kind of like from the easier stuff to the harder stuff in a way. Okay. But then I also think there's almost an opposite flavor because cats are very somatic and in their bodies and like sensual that way, right? So mm-hmm. in a way, offering the cat could be about that somatic therapy. And then the progression to Lippy offered this really big snake, which snake is like transformation and healing and and changing. Like there's more to be done now in that symbolic transformation realm. And it's not just all about where emotions are in my body anymore. Okay. 
Shall I add a little bit to it? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, number five is important. Yeah. Quintessence. Um, we have five fingers, five toes. So five is a big, important number for human beings. It's usually a transformative number. Also, cats are feminine. And we did a lot of work around that. Yeah. Well, and see, in the dream, I knew that the cat was masculine, which is interesting. Because oh, the easy stuff was the masculine for me. And oh. like looking at the feminine, but more through a masculine lens. And then I knew that the snake in the dream was was female. And snakes are also like, you know, the aurora borealis. Yeah. They're the aurora borealis. They're a sign of completion. So it's not coincidence. I think the last image was a snake. That it's sort of completed the thing, and it's an image of wholeness. Their snakes are um, symbolic of a raising of consciousness. Adam and Eve, their consciousness was raised by the snake. In Kundalini, the Kundalini tradition, there's a snake that lays coiled at the bottom of your spine, and when it comes unraveled, you you are enlightened. Yeah. Snakes shed their skin. Snakes are also very. There's something called serpent wisdom, where a snake sort of finds the quickest route through any weird situation, just mm. sort of figures it out. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think a, a snake in the fifth place is a real win. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, tell us about this trip home. Your your family is Methodist or what? Christian. Uh, oh, Church of Christ. Church very of Christ. fundamentalist Christian. Where? I'm from a small town in Missouri. Okay. Joplin, Missouri. So Midwest, Christian, hardcore, Church of Christ, God is great, Jesus, you know, little candles, the whole thing, right? Uh, very dogmatic, very authoritarian, very legalistic kind of religion that stripped out the emotion pretty much everywhere it could. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about, about your childhood and about the environment that you were raised in? Yeah, it's been really interesting to come to grips with all of that because, you know, I was raised in an intact home with parents who loved me and plenty of resources. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor. Mm -hmm. I had plenty of, you know, opportunities. And so I just thought, you know, what do I have to complain about? Everything must have been fine. But really, because of my personality and my parents' personality, I'm learning that. I was responsible for my mother's emotions from mm -hmm. a very young age and responsible for my father's ego from a very young age. Can you give examples of that? Well, my mother idolized her own mother. And so I think she needed that from me. Anytime I was upset and she didn't understand my emotions, she would just tell me, you know, she didn't understand me. So I was wrong. Mm -hmm. I was, wasn't girly enough. Mm -hmm. You know, it was always that there was like something wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And so I learned that I just needed to be like her as much as I could so that I didn't make her upset. My mother got a lot of her emotional well-being from how I reflected her emotions instead of the other way around. You know, they say that healthy parenting is when the parent can reflect and support the child's emotions. And mm -hmm. in my relationship with my mom, it's the other way. I was supposed to, to reflect and support hers. So she wasn't happy unless you were happy. Right. Unless everything around her, her children were in the house and her environment was good and happy and light and, you know, let's say Christmassy because it's almost Christmas, exactly. uh, then her world was not so good. Yeah. And I mean, she was demonstrative. She was loving. You know, I had plenty of support, but mm -hmm. like that's very insidious. Anytime my emotions differed from hers, mm -hmm. I was told that I was wrong. Yeah religion played into that too because our very fundamentalist religion was all about you know the bible is the only authority mm -hmm. and so we were explicitly taught to never listen to that still small voice within us mm -hmm. that in depth psychology i think is like the self with the capital s or the unconscious what speaks mm -hmm. through dreams and everything mm -hmm. i was taught that that was probably from the devil so i should uh. like never ever you know we could never say but that doesn't feel right to me like that didn't matter it's only about external authority. And so I fell into that very quickly. And then my father was a science teacher 
Um, so, you know, I did science projects every year from age like 10 or 11 and went to science fairs and won science fairs. And, you know, I played softball and he coached and mm -hmm. we had to win that too. And it was like, you know, my father's idea of success was how many things my sister and I had done that week that he could, you know, put our names in the paper for. Oh, okay. And so that's what I mean about I was responsible for my father's ego. I see. You know, I, ne I never would have even asked myself, do I want to do any of those things? Right. It was just that was how I got love. Yeah. You know, we weren't loved because of who we were. We were loved because of what we did. Right. And that's just what our family dynamic was. And so I knew how to do all the stuff to get loved and I felt loved. Um, but it it, it wasn't necessarily my choice. And your sister is a doctor as well. She is. Also she's, a pediatrician? She's a family practice doctor, so she yeah. takes care of all ages so and delivers babies. So both you and your sister grew up to make daddy happy. Yes. And how did religion play into the science piece? Um, you know, I feel like science is very black and white. It wants to be about what we can understand. And mm -hmm. our religion was actually very black and white. I mean, legalistic is the best thing. Like we were taught to like quote passages of the Bible, like a lawyer would quote the law mm -hmm. about like what we were supposed to know and what we mm -hmm. were supposed to do. Um, Can you give me an example? Like the New Testament never mentions the use of instruments in worship, even though the Old Testament does. And because the New Testament is when the church was formed, our church, we didn't use any instruments because it wasn't in the Bible, so we couldn't do it. I always wondered, there was no like electricity mentioned in the Bible, so were we allowed to have electric lights? But I didn't ask anybody that. Why was the New Testament given precedent over the Old Testament? Uh, because that's where it talked about Jesus, and that's when the church was formed, was like when Jesus was around. So mm -hmm. the Old Testament didn't matter as much. So mm -hmm. that's what I mean about legalistic stuff. And then, of course, you know, being gay was wrong, getting divorced was wrong, mm -hmm. you know, all of that very black and white stuff. What about the fact that science is often at odds with creationism yeah interestingly i mean there were plenty of people in our religion that believed in the earth was only six thousand years old because my dad was from a science background that was never us so we didn't really that wasn't a problem for us but but how did that go down in your community like was there a tension around that like between him and did he think that those church members were nuts or like what did he yeah he thought those church members were nuts um but we just didn't you know, we just didn't talk about that. Like that wasn't part of worship talking about evolution mm. or something. So it was pretty easy to sweep that under the rug. That's interesting. Did, was your mom more into like the creationistic piece than your father? Yeah, probably because my mom is the one that was that religion to start with. And my dad converted to it. Oh, yeah. to marry her. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. All that well, not to marry her. No, it, it, he was Baptist. So which is very much like our religion, except mm -hmm no instruments and more I, strict. I gotta say though, I, I apologize <laughs> for hammering this point, but I'm surprised that a science teacher, professor of college, of, of, of which, of what science? Uh, he started as a biology teacher in high school and then yeah. to be a, uh, a professor at a university too. Of mm -hmm. biology. Mm -hmm. I'm really surprised that a, that a biology professor would be able to stomach something like a fundamentalist Christian worldview. That's, it's amazing to me. You know, I'm surprised at a lot of the cognitive dissonance that people in the Midwest are able to continue. But uh, yeah. do you think it just do you think just I guess what you're saying is the structure and the kind of the dogmatic black and white orthodox nature of religion and science are kind of were well met, well met in yeah, his mind. Exactly. I yep. see that one didn't have to think. 
Right. This is just, these are the facts and, and boom, boom, boom. He never would have been drawn to like Catholicism with kind of its right. more gray areas and mystery and the sacred and, you know, like that. Yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. I find that um, younger religions are much more dogmatic and orthodox than the older ones. Like the older they get, like Judaism is like, gets so wild. I mean, I know there's orthodox Judaism, but like, I mean, Judaism gets mystical and strange right. and like mm-hmm. weird number stuff out of the torah and like you know they're 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 out there well and there was a lot of mysticism around christianity when it started yeah years ago but that's not the people who won so all the gnostic stuff got destroyed and yeah for those of you who don't know what that is so the gnostics why don't you talk about what that is what's the gnostics i mean the gnostics were the mystical sect of christianity but gnosticism is about knowing not learning it's mm-hmm. about inner knowing mm-hmm. it's not about the external authority in the bible it's about discovering things within yourself and but th- that that sect literally had their their meetings underground in caves right uh, and they for were, a while, yeah and they were seeking they didn't have they didn't put christ on a crucifix because the idea was that christ was an inner experience right and they had women leading services because it didn't matter and right. they didn't have a hierarchy a different person could preach every week i mean there's just so many things that were so egalitarian about it and so mystical in the like not in the touchy-feely woo-woo but in right. the like really inner sense yeah and seymour my old therapist used to talk about the swing from gnosticism to orthodox thinking you know a lot of times um, a philosophy will start off as a gnostic and a gnostic by gnostic we mean like an inner knowing an inner seeing like a revelation you know when jesus goes out into the desert or when joan of arc has her thing or or muhammad had his thing and Heck, even Joseph Smith from yeah. <laughs> church had his thing, went out yeah. there and went, oh my God, they have a Gnostic experience. Mm-hmm. And they see things, They it's probably a, a deep connection with the self or the collective that they're experiencing. I, who, who can measure it? Who can say, right? But the point is they have a Gnostic experience. They see all these things. They know all these things. They see all this beautiful stuff. And then, the, and then their teachings are reinterpreted by a bunch of narrow-minded idiots yep. who basically or paint by the numbers and dance like you put the paint the dance things on the floor and oh, this is how yeah. you, this is where you put your <laughs> yeah. feet you know and the, the the funny thing is like you know people talk about you know walking literally walking in the footsteps of christ like, this is where christ went it's like right. you guys are missing the point completely completely it happened to jung too right you know jung was very gnostic in all of his stuff and mm-hmm. go with the dreamer and listen to the patient and whatever and mm-hmm. then the people that came after him tried to put him on a pedestal and codify yeah. things and make them more dogmatic and pin him down for more rules and things that worked all the time and yep. there's a quote where he said thank god i'm young and not a jungian yeah <laughs> That is absolutely true. I wonder if greater minds like Einstein and whomever else, I'm sure I'll be corrected by somebody who knows more than I do about how these people thought, but you know, they, they, they some of those physicists and mathematicians are can get pretty mystical with stuff. They can be pretty open and pretty Gnostic, and there can be much more like orthodox mathematicians and orthodox physicists. And um, I wonder if the ones who are very open-minded are the ones who make the greatest discoveries. It would make sense to me. Yeah. I mean, you often, you often hear stories about scientists um, who buck trends and just sort of go off on their own and do something wild. Yeah, I mean, Dmitry Mendeleev, the chemist who made the the periodic table, was trying to figure out structure or whatever, and then he saw in a dream that periodic table that we all think of now with the rows and the columns, and mm-hmm. he just he woke up knowing that because his unconscious gave it to him in a dream. That's amazing. <laughs> all right. Anyway, and so your your sister's hung back in the Midwest. She's still out there, right? Yeah, she's a doctor in a town of twelve hundred people in rural Kansas, and every single one of them's her patient, probably. Yep. Hers or her husband's. They're the town physicians. Oh my goodness. So 
while your sister and your father and uh, your your mother passed away ten years ago, eight years ago, eight years ago. I suppose the rest of your family, um, more family members, have kind of hung back in the Midwest. You struck out for California for New Horizons. Yeah, and I, I'm the only one. They all think I'm nuts. <laughs> well, they're they're absolutely correct. <laughs> you you have undergone a philosophical, major philosophical worldview shift. Yeah. And so I imagine going home must be very interesting, Miss Lawson. Would you, Dr. Lawson, would you care to address? It is very interesting. That's what I tell people when they ask why we moved out here. It, it, I had to be out here to find out what I really thought and mm -hmm. what I really think is my own worldview because I'm so susceptible when there's pressure to conform mm -hmm. that I never would have been able to think about any of this stuff if I was still in the Midwest. I mean, sure, there wouldn't have been an opportunity and some therapist like you wouldn't have been there, mm -hmm. but also I wouldn't have been able to let myself think that way. You know, mm -hmm. out here, nobody cares what I think. There's mm -hmm. all kinds of diversity and yeah, anyway. So going back to the Midwest always feels like going uphill, like going somewhere where I'm gonna be swimming through mud and. <laughs> And not not really able to act and and think and be like I like I usually am. Mm -hmm. I'm always thinking I'll probably get get judged. And you know I like when I went back uh, after my sister had her babies and all the all the older grandma ladies, not my grandma, but you know all the older ladies were like, "How in the world can you live out there? How can you not want to live close to your family and these babies? And why don't you have babies of your own? And like you know mm -hmm. if you're not like everybody else, people are actively asking you why and making you defend really? why you're choosing to not be like it. Yeah, it's very much like that wow. in at least my parts of the Midwest. Wow. And somebody from here just would never even know what that felt like. What yeah. other kind of judgments do you think they make? Um, or do you worry they make? Or do they do just outright make? <laughs> <laughs> do they outright make? I mean, do you go to church? Um, why don't you have kids? Is San Francisco really full of naked people? Um, <laughs> I get that a lot. But they probably worry about do I think that being gay is a sin? Because I should. Uh, I think they probably have trouble understanding why I would want to live somewhere where there was so much diversity because they feel uncomfortable around people that aren't the same as them. Mm -hmm. And so they aren't able to understand why we don't feel uncomfortable out here. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff. Let's talk about this trip home that you had. What well, I haven't been able to go back to the Midwest as often during the pandemic, obviously. Mm -hmm. But um, I also have a 94-year-old grandfather who... I don't know how much longer he's going to be around, but he's, um, you know, still lives alone. He's still in good shape. He still drives. Mm -hmm. And I've been talking to him more over the last year or so since my grandma died. And we've gotten closer. He was just like, you're going to be in the Midwest. Are you going to come see me? And I hadn't been planning on it, but I realized that I should go see grandpa. It was a time when it wasn't safe to fly. So I had already driven 25 hours total to get to my sister's house. Mm -hmm. And then several days later, I drove another six hours to, to my hometown and I stayed with my grandpa for a couple of days. It was really interesting. I never was close to my grandpa. I never like spent a lot of time one-on-one -on -one with him or anything. And mm -hmm. my family wasn't a family that had deep conversations. So I never had real good conversations with him. So it was interesting to spend time one-on-one -on -one with him. And what we ended up doing is going through all of his photo albums, which my dad and his new wife could not understand why I would want to do that. Dad and his new wife. <sighs> Can we pause for just a second and revisit that statement before we get into the photo albums? <laughs> 
why for you call dad's new wife dad's new wife even though they've been married for uh, seven years seven years yeah that's true um what else would i call her um <laughs> well she's not new <laughs> she's new compared to my mom <laughs> um well i refuse to call her my stepmother because she had nothing to do with raising me yeah so i don't really know what other people call them but but yes i suppose there's some shade in it too and it has very little to do with her and more to do with the fact that my parents were married for 40 years and then six weeks after my mom died my dad was dating again and he met this woman eight mm -hmm. weeks after mom died and did wait another year to marry her but yeah i it's talk about world views and black and white and formulas like he couldn't survive without a without a wife nope I had taken time off of my job in San, in San Francisco to, and said I would stay with him for a couple of months to help him get settled. Yeah. And I was treated to the sight of him putting on cologne and getting dressed up and going out on dates with other woman, women. Ugh. And I kind of said, okay, I'm going back home. <laughs> yeah, so I'm trying to give the audience a picture of what you are really part of. Yeah. So you're going through these photo albums. Yeah. So we were going through photo albums and grandpa was downloading all these stories to me. Um, and we started to get to somewhere I was younger. And there's this one picture of me at a, you know, winning some science award. So grandma and grandpa must have come to the award ceremony and he took his pictures and he looked at me and he said, Amy, you know what I've always wondered? And I was like, what? Because he'd already asked me some interesting questions. And he said, I always wondered, were you doing that stuff because you wanted to or because your dad wanted you to? And I was completely blown away by that question mm -hmm. because, of course, I've thought about it, but I didn't think anybody in my family would have ever thought about it, much less my grandpa, who's my dad's dad. Mm -hmm. I kind of let it pass at the time, but then later that night when I was alone, I was just crying because for another adult to see me as a child and to know that he was seeing me as a whole human mm -hmm. with my own preferences. I had never considered that I had anything like that before because my preferences weren't important and I didn't try to exert them. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that there was like some patriarchal in a good way, loving father figure who just wanted me to be me Mm -hmm. was very emotionally overwhelming and very healing in a way, even though I only found it out now, knowing that that existed back when I was a child has been like retroactively healing. A Gnostic was watching you the whole time. Yeah, true. What else did he say? <laughs> he, at one point he said, Aim, I want to ask you a kind of a personal question. But I really, I really want to know, is that okay? And I was like, oh God, what is he going to say? Okay, grandpa, lay it on me. It's okay. It's like, were you ever sad that you couldn't have kids? Was that okay with you? <laughs> and I said, oh, grandpa, no, that, that was okay. Because I've been worrying about that. I've been worrying about that for a long time. I said, mm -hmm. no, grandpa, it's okay. Because um, mm -hmm. I had cancer when I was 19 and my chemo, you know, after my chemo, I didn't have fertility anymore, which never bothered me. I was like, if somebody's going to lose their fertility, it might as well have been me because I never planned on having children. Figured I, we could adopt if we wanted to. Mm -hmm. But that was very interesting to me, too. And I guess that's another uh, example of people in the Midwest not being able to see that it might be okay if you mm -hmm. couldn't have kids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't really so much any other interactions with my grandpa that made that trip so interesting. 
it was some of the stuff that happened to me alone as well. I had a rental car and I was I was driving around. I had to go to my dad's house. They him and his new wife built a new house. <laughs> so I had to go and ogle it and appropriately find the right compliments and things. Yeah. Um sounds awful. It was fine. They they did a good job designing it, but uh um, I'm sure they painted it perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> there is a lot of decoration. Mm-hmm. And so this was the first time that I've first time since my midlife crisis inner awakening, whatever, Mm -hmm. that I've been back in my hometown by myself. Mm -hmm. And I was just driving around and I was looking at the places I used to go and Mm -hmm. seeing the places I went with my friends and seeing places I went on dates. And all of these emotions started coming up very unexpectedly. Um, You know, I was like on the road that I would always drive to, to drive to high school. And I started to feel like those emotions of going to school and, you know, who am I going to talk to today? And are things going to be all right or not? And all this stuff coming back that I haven't thought about in forever. Mm-hmm. And I started to realize how much I have not lived with my teenage self at all. Like that's just been like suppressed. Um, I think I need to tell the end of the story first and then I'll get to why this is important. Mm-hmm. The day I left, I left really early in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, I had two days to drive back to California. And I moved to start putting on my audiobook because that's what I always do when I'm driving is listen to a story. Mm-hmm. I don't like being with myself and my thoughts. I want somebody to be telling me what to think, basically. Um, I'm not different in a car. It's boring as fuck. Yeah, yeah. Know, like I'm trapped in a little thought bubble racing down the freeway. No, thank you. <laughs> and I think because I was in such an open state from having these lovely conversations with my grandpa that kind of opened me up and I had been thinking about my child self. Mm-hmm. Plus it was early morning and my grandpa had kept me up till 1.30 in the morning talking and now I'm up early to drive. I couldn't turn on the audiobook and I thought, what am I going to do then? And I had this flash like, put on music that you used to listen to here. Mm-hmm. And I've never been a huge like music person, but I could start to remember some of the stuff that I always listened to in high school. And so I started like dumping a playlist into Spotify of like things I knew I used to listen to. And I started listening and I started crying and I start kept listening and I kept crying. It was so overwhelming what were you listening to because as soon as this music came on it was like a a shortcut to all of those emotions again i mean i'm old so what was i listening to like a lot of um u2 bon jovi billy joel Mm -hmm. um stuff that i realize now that i have purposely chosen not to listen to because i think it would bring up stuff from back then i i didn't realize that and so i spent the next 26 hours of driving over two days listening to these playlists at really loud, singing at the top of my lungs because I knew all the words still, crying, laughing, like processing. I mean, it was the most unexpected emotional release. So strange. But basically what I was discovering is like all of this compassion for my teenage self. Uh And like, I can now appreciate, I mean, I know everybody is always a mess as a teenager. I know that. But I can now appreciate that the framework and the groundwork of what I need now that I didn't start finding till my midlife crisis was there when I was a teenager. I was feeling lost. I was feeling empty. I was feeling like there's got to be more than this. What can it be? But it was so threatening to, to think about that at all that I just kind of suppressed it and didn't think about it 
But even like when I would listen to what I knew were my favorite songs back then, there are lyrics in them that are clearly predicting that I needed gray areas and depth psychology and Jung mm. and dreams. And I never knew why those were my favorite songs. But now I go back and listen to them mm -hmm. and I can hear why my unconscious knew that those needed to be my favorite songs. Right. So many of them had messages that I wasn't ready to hear yet. It was just the strangest thing. My therapist said when I was telling her this story, she was like, Amy, I think you were just like driving back across the country, stitching part of yourself back to yourself, stitching that teenage part of yourself back into your, your personality. Mm -hmm. And it's totally true. I didn't realize how much inner energy I was spending like suppressing and not thinking about that part of my life because mm -hmm. it doesn't doesn't match with my life now. And so the fact that now I can, it's like freed up so much of this energy. Mm -hmm. And then I, I had a lesser thing happen like a month later. I was miserable for about five years before we moved out here and before my midlife crisis. And I haven't wanted to think about that time in St. Louis where I was so unhappy for several years because I was dumb and I should have made changes sooner. And I was trying to be what other people told me I should be and stay in academics and medicine and whatever. Before you moved out here, what was what was going on? Before we moved out here, I had you know stayed where I had trained. I was still working at the same hospital that I did. And when you train in medicine, like academics is the the mecca. It's what everybody's supposed to want to do. And mm -hmm. anything that's not academic is a step down. And so I was really, of course, because I'm a good girl and I want to jump through the hoops and do what everybody tells me is success. I wanted that to be my idea of success, but I wasn't. Mm -hmm. I wasn't happy in academics. I wasn't happy playing the game. And I didn't understand why. Because mm -hmm. I had everything that people told me I was supposed to want and have. I had a great marriage. I had a nice house. I had a good job. Mm -hmm. I had a respected career. I was both teaching and like doing administration and being a doctor. And I was so unhappy. Mm -hmm. And now I see that I had to go through that. And that was like, now I have compassion for that part too. I don't just think, God, you were dumb. You should have made a change a lot sooner. I couldn't have made a change sooner because I, I how do you how do you purposely make a change away from what everybody has told you is mm -hmm. the ideal of success? Like yeah. you don't until you get real, real miserable. Yeah. And that's what made us come out here. Okay. Um, and so you had this experience in, in the car with yeah. listening to music. Which when I talk about it doesn't sound like I don't know. I hope I'm doing it justice, but well, it was a big deal. To me. Well, it's an inner, in, inner it's like yeah. a Gnostic experience. It's yeah, an oh, inner totally. experience. The thing about introverted experiences, they're non-concrete. Yeah. And I would imagine that's well contrasted with your grandfather's material and all that. Well, yeah, I think that's the important thing is that grandpa seeing me as a whole person. And that's what I was missing. That's what that empty part was when I was a teenager was figuring out that there's value in things just because they exist. There's value in people just because they exist. There's right. value in ideas just because they exist. Uh, I guess what I'm also curious about is, is have you tried <laughs> discussing either with your sister or your brother-in-law or your, even your father um, your move into archetypal psychology? Because, I mean, moving moving from Missouri, from St. Louis to California is, is, is a crime in of itself. I can't imagine... <laughs> their opinion of your move from one whole philosophical position to another, one that seems to be not only anti-science, but anti-Christ. Hmm. Well, I will tell you a quick story about trying to talk about that a little with my dad, and that will show you. 
I mean, he doesn't understand why I would have wanted to go back to school and be anything but a doctor for sure. Uh-huh. But um, depth psychology has made me think more deeply about medicine and stuff too. And so my dad always asks me whenever we talk, you got any, inter- any interesting medical stories by which he means weird diseases or strange infections or, you know, stuff yeah. like that that he wants to hear about. And he asked me that one time and I said, oh yeah, I got a few good stories. And I spent about 15 minutes telling him about four or five different patient encounters I'd had in the last week or two that were like super meaningful uh-huh. in some way. And he just listened and didn't say anything for like 10 minutes. And then at the end of it, after I had basically poured my heart out about how I was just finding so much meaning in medicine again after you know going back to school. Do you remember any of the stories? Yeah, I think that week the trend had been like connecting parents with their children, which uh-huh. is kind of important, right? But like, imagine that. I mean, I had these parents who were like terrified of their newborn and they were like, she just cries all the time. I just picked her up and looked at her and let her see my face and talk to her in a calm way. And she calmed right down. And like, you know, the parents thought I was the baby whisperer or something. Right. But all I was doing was showing them how a baby can pick up on your emotions and how they like to be treated, you know? And I had had some parents who were like, had a premature baby, so they were terrified to feed it. Mm -hmm. And the baby knows that. The baby knows that the parents are anxious. So of course the baby's not going to eat. If the parent's like, oh my goodness, I don't know. And I can't feed my baby. And this is terrible. And this means I'm a bad mother. And so no, the the baby's not going to eat. We had to talk about feeding techniques in that. And then there was like a toddler that week who was just, you know, having so many behavioral issues, but we kind of were able to think about, oh, what's the root of it? Oh, dad's been gone on a business trip for a week. Like, you know, just little things like that, but that families and parents can't necessarily see. Mm -hmm. But once you see it, it it makes so much sense and you're helping them make sense of their life. And I'm sure there were a few other stories too. And I poured my heart out and dad just looked at me at the end and was like, well, okay, but do you have any interesting medical stories? Oh man! So that's that's. Like I just the did tell you a medical story. It's like yeah. those didn't fit into his meta, his model of what medical was. Right? Did you point that out to him? No, I just shook my head and yeah. I mean, he is who he is. He's not gonna change. That's amazing. Yeah, my sister, on the other hand, I mean, she was not the good girl, follow all the rules like I was. So mm-hmm. in a way, she got a jump start on all of this. You know, I sure I talk to her about school stuff all the time, and she actually sees a union therapist now. does she mm-hmm. holy shit oh yeah that she's been you didn't seeing tell him me for, that i didn't yeah no she's been seeing him for since shortly after i started school because i was talking about it and she was like i gotta find a union guy wow does daddy know who his daughters are anymore no no he has no. no clue no and that's the sad thing about that you know his his mark of whether he's a good parent or not is yeah. did he raise children who are just like him yeah and he didn't and so it's very upsetting and mm-hmm. my sister and i tried to tell him like dad you raised two strong independent women who can think for ourselves and we're both doctors you did a good job but he he doesn't see it that way because we don't share his political views or you know, because they don't. You don't think that Biden stole the election? At that, yeah. uh, I mean, I take care of undocumented people. We've never had that conversation, but I don't think that would go well. Oh dear. One of the things I want to talk about philosophically is you see this with personality disorders like narcissism, borderline, histrionic, paranoid, whatever. Those words describe a worldview. It's not like a mood disorder, like depression or anxiety, but it's mm. like a way of being. Mm. Uh, when you know, Tony Soprano, when he goes to see the psychiatrist, mm. he learns to be a better sociopath. 
<laughs> you know, yep. a thief with a personality disorder goes to a therapist to become a better thief. And so when one philosophy encounters another philosophy that's completely different from itself, and, and in that philosophy doesn't contain the ability to incorporate new information, that new philosophy is seen as bad or wrong, which right. is why a narcissist, if somebody challenges a narcissist, that person is instantly bad or wrong and insane. To a firmly integrate, to a firmly put together, a really well organized insane person who's really structured their whole lives around their insanity. I mean, I would say that Trump is a good example. He, he life is full of yes men, and he fires everybody who doesn't agree with him. He, mm. he maintains his worldview and the people around him. Right? Mm -hmm. You can see this all over the place. Let's say if someone's super paranoid, and you try to convince them that their paranoia is nuts, then suddenly you're the one of the people that's conspiring against them. Yeah. Right. They incorporate you into their worldview. So philosophies, in a way, do the same thing, right? Especially when they're rigid philosophies. Mm. And the medical model is, in a way, mentally ill as a philosophy in the sense that, parts of it anyway, that when it looks at new ways of doing things and ways that are not measurable, it sees those as junk philosophies, as as bullshit, as magic, magical thinking. There's a whole category of, of, of the medical model called magical thinking. This is, oh, that's magical thinking. <laughs> and the problem that I have is that, you know, the metal, I've said this before, but the medical model and science in general is a measure of what we know and ergo a measure of what, of how ignorant we are. It's like we, we are this full of shit, exactly, <laughs> to this degree, okay. you know, and, um, <laughs> You know, it's like it's like if it doesn't if it doesn't if it doesn't if it can't be measured, it doesn't exist, and it's 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 wrong and bad, and don't do that. And um, the problem is, is that philosophy gets misused, you know, by you know people who have uh, you know don't trust doctors and don't trust science, and and you know they want to because they're they're convinced that the vaccine has a uh, microchip in it that you should take a bath in borax. No joke, that's a, a doctor who's out there who says that people should bathe in borax mm. to make sure that the microchips in the vaccine get washed out of their system because that's really important. So it is true that there are a lot of wackos that are outside of the medical model. So it's difficult to know in the sort of the 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 gnostic. Or is it like? Is it like? In other words, when you're looking at something that's not that's not orthodox thinking, and it's sort of in this gnostic soup, like how do you know if it's gnostic and good and right, or if it's just wackadoodle? It's mm. it's it's hard to know, right? You know, like people who who are all into crystals and and you know spend all their money on like something really ridiculous, like a like I don't know some some ornament from something that's supposed to clear out your aura of purple <laughs> dots. I, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like yes. I have salt lamps all over my apartment and I don't have them all over my apartment because I think they're going to clarify, they're supposed to purify the blah, 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 blah. I, I just think they're cool looking, <laughs> you know, and people say, does this, are you this for medicinal? No, it's, they're awesome. Look at that. Isn't that cool? Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And then I leave it at that. So it's like, how do you know? I guess my question is, I'm ranting. How do you know when you're outside the medical model or a scientific model, because the scientific model is real. It works, man. I mean, that's no that's no joke, that stuff. You know, it's mm -hmm. like they cure diseases, they fix bones, and they do surgery and and they save lives. And it's it's incredible, right? And then it hits a kind of a mushy wall, and then beyond that wall, what are you supposed to think? What are you supposed to do? How do you select? Yeah. Doctor <laughs> of both worlds. I ask you. I put it to you, Amy. <clears throat> I definitely have an answer that will that will totally explain everything. No, I mean that's the hard thing is that our Western culture has put all of this on medicine and thinks that we should know everything and be able to fix everything all the time. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of exhausting. You know, yes, we've done a lot of good with science. There's a lot of really good studies for things. 
the example I always use is, you know, I don't care if some treatment or drug or whatever is like found to be 98% effective. I need the choice and my patient needs the choice to decide whether they're in the 98% or the 2%. Mm -hmm. And science or insurance companies and administrations and people that make algorithms would like to take that away from us and say, well, no, you're not allowed to think you might be in the 2%. So, mm. you know, you shouldn't follow the rules. Yeah. And that's wrong. Yeah. It, it all comes down to us seeing ourselves as like cars that we take to the mechanic, you know, mm-hmm. going to the doctor's like going to take your car to get it fixed. Mm-hmm. And it's not about people being whole people anymore. And mm-hmm. it's a problem. But the medical model can't measure whole people things. The, the Can you give an example of what you mean? So step into that 2%. What, what's going on there? <clears throat> to me, a lot of the 2% things are the stuff that's in the psychosomatic realm. Okay. Medical culture wisdom dictates that every person who comes in with chest pain gets an EKG because they might be having a heart attack. I have so many small children who come in with chest pain. I mean, I had an eight-year-old last week come in with chest pain and told me that he was worried that his heart was going to make him die. He's eight, right? Oh my. I'm not doing an EKG on that kid. I mean, I asked the right questions and made sure he wasn't having exercise intolerance and asthma and whatever, you know. Yeah. But like, I'm not doing an EKG on that kid because it freaks them out too. all the stickers and the whatever. And they have to be still and they see these things, these weird spiky lines. Like that would have done more trauma to the kid than Mm -hmm. me just explaining to him what he's feeling, how his ribs move, how usually then they're like and it really hurts when i cough and then you're like okay well as long as it's when you move or when you can feel things or whatever then Mm -hmm. it's muscles and ribs and bones and it's not your heart but it's all that psychosomatic stuff but it's much easier to just run an ekg on somebody and tell them it's normal you know that Mm -hmm. takes what five minutes Mm -hmm. i mean for the doctor it takes like 60 seconds because we're not the ones that do the ekg Mm -hmm. instead i spent like 30 minutes with that kid and family telling them about the connection between mind and body, figuring out what's been particularly stress- stressful lately, mm-hmm. talking about how the ribs and the sternum and the rib cage and everything move with every breath and why that can cause pain sometimes, and like connecting them with their body so that these sensations don't always have to be because I'm dying. Mm-hmm. I have several patients that are always coming up with psychosomatic things like this. And instead of always having them come in every time for a checkup, I talk to them on the phone every two or three weeks so that they can run any new symptoms by me. Right. And sure, like, you know, if it's something serious, then I'll have them come in and and just do an exam and be sure. It's not. And usually after I call them once or twice, they're done and they're like, yeah, the symptoms aren't coming up anymore. We don't have to do this anymore. Yeah. They need that the power, the archetypal power of the doctor checking in with them makes them feel safe. Yeah. And that's one could say magical thinking, but so (laughs) it worked. Yeah. And Does that in- answer your yeah, question? Yeah, because what I'm saying that- is I think I think you're stepping into the you're stepping into the unmeasurable part. You're stepping into the projection that patients have on doctors and you're using it in a positive way, yeah. which is a non-measurable phenomenon for sure. And some people would say probably that that's like unethical or something or it's patriarchal or it's like, you know, just patting them on the head and being like you're okay, you're okay. But it's 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 not. It's not. How can it be patriarchal? You're a woman. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> You're a strong independent woman who's I, patriarchal? I, I doubt yeah. that. So I guess what I'm getting at is like it's uncomfortable to be in the middle. But the big archetype in my life, unfortunately, is bridge. And that is 
very unfortunate for how black and white I grew up with everything. I think that I am meant to be a bridge between many, many different things in my life. And it would be much easier to choose either one side or the other of the bridge. It would be much easier to choose either medicine or depth psychology. Yeah. But instead, I have to practice somewhere in the middle where I can feel both. Can any more examples of where how you practice in the middle would be delicious to hear? Two weeks ago, I had a patient come in for something else, but I saw that she had been referred to GI because she has constipation. And I was like, people don't need to get referred to GI because of constipation. But then I kind of realized the mom was kind of unsure about how to treat it and not particularly medically literate. And the little girl is like very dramatic and difficult to deal with. And mm -hmm. But instead of being like, I'm going to turf this to GI, like just go see the specialist. Like I just talked to the mom on the phone twice a week for the next three weeks. We got the little girl's constipation sorted out. And I turned that little girl from someone that we all dreaded coming into the clinic because mm -hmm. she was just so mean to like her mom was like, she's a new child. And I'm like, yeah, because she's not miserable and in pain. And like, mm -hmm. but that's a middle ground of like, okay, I'm not the specialist, but I can do this. And the way it needs to be done is by psychologizing the mom, basically, not mm -hmm. by, it wasn't about how to treat the child, it was mm -hmm. about how to get the mom supported to be able to follow through with the treatment plan, which is yeah. what she hadn't been able to do. Yeah. Can you give tips possibly for people, how do you know, like I mentioned earlier, which philosophies to go with when, when there's no way to measure stuff, when it's a sort of a Gnostic soupy mess? What are some of the what are some indicators that might lead someone to say, hey, this is this is a good philosophy as opposed to like, you know, um, I'm gonna join a cult and drink some drink something and 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 go join the hail bob comet and fly around the sun remember that one i do you know like like we watched that documentary <laughs> the other day mm -hmm. listen your dad does he feels safe in his in his worldview mm -hmm. and if someone doesn't feel safe stepping outside of their worldview i don't kind of blame them i mean it's like you're stepping off a freaking cliff so how is someone to know where to go what to do how do you do that I mean, I could only speak for myself. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's just been developing that relationship with my inner voice and my uh -huh. inner knowing. And it's taken a long time to uncover that because like I wasn't allowed to use it for so long, right? This depth psychology stuff just makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. There is so much meaning in it. Do you know the word numinous? You know yeah, the word numinous? The spirit. It's about finding what's numinous to you. Numinous is like emotional power, like something feeling like it has way more meaning and purpose and power and emotion behind it than logic would dictate right having some experience of awe or wonder is like numinous and to me when i have a dream and i can see how much sense it makes or when i watch a movie and i can see all the archetypes playing and how perfectly it makes sense right i'm drawn toward that meaning and that purpose and that explanation and it just feels true and right and real but i think you have to be able to trust yourself and and whether self with a capital S is pointing you right or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. So working your way through the the soup is about getting to know yourself on a deeper level and trusting that that relationship will yield good judgment. Yeah. Okay. Are we done? Well, I, I just wanted to add that, you know, I listened to the episode that you did with Sam Lamott last week on how to human. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, And I thought it was interesting that he asked you, like, how do you know when your patients get better? Ah, uh, yeah. Because, and I wanted to be like, me, 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 and like raise my hands and be like, well, you just, you know that when, when people go on and take the ideas that you've given them and dig more deeply and their and, lives change. And grow. I mean, you've yeah. grown and it's not, it's not really clear how you've grown, but it's really obvious that you have. 
and I'm spreading it to other people too, even though I don't always call it deaf psychology. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it just, this whole podcast has been proof of your growth. Um, and mine, I would say, you know, mm -hmm. I was more of an asshole back in the day. <laughs> what was the first thing I asked you when you walked in? Uh, you didn't ask me. You told me. Uh, what did you I say? Said, you? you put on a good show, Amy. Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Yeah. That was a bit of a dumb thing to say. I'm sorry I said that. <laughs> my, It's okay. Got your attention, though. It, it definitely got my attention. <laughs> well, don't, don't they say, isn't that why, like, the Facebook and Twitter algorithms are, are set to show you stuff that you disagree with because it causes more engagement? Oh. I'm pretty sure. You, you were just nagging me. See? You were nagging me, just like all those millennials say they do. That's uh -huh. how you attract a mate or something, right? I, 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 the I, I, of negging. no, no, I, I, there's a joke in there, but I think it's something about backwards compliments or whatever. But anyway, it did engage me, even though it was negative, even if it was just, I'm going to prove this guy wrong, even though you were right. But <laughs> I really, I really was putting on a good show, but I couldn't see that at the time. Yeah. Well, so it goes. <laughs> so yeah, I think clients do get better. How do you know it when you invite them on your podcast? Well, Dr. Dr. Amy Lawson, I call her Dr. Dr. because she's doctor twice. Not yet. Not till I finish my PhD. Dr. Almost Dr. Lawson. It was a pleasure. Master Doctor. I have a master's. Dr. Master Almost Dr. <laughs> Lawson of Archetypal Psychology. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening. Additional information regarding this podcast will appear in the program notes. Should you care to make an inquiry, please feel free to email me at benjaminrusick at gmail.com or visit my website at benjaminrusick.com. Again, thanks for listening. And remember, should you ever find that your plate is full, well, consider getting yourself a larger plate.